An entertainment company won the weekend, and a social media company just lost a major advertiser. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Howdy, howdy. Let's start with Disney, shall we? Because the weekend box office for Black Panther Wakanda Forever was... It was huge. It was 180 million here in the US, 330 million globally. It's the second largest opening of the year for a film. And that's largely been overshadowed by the news that we got <laughs> late Friday. Um, reports of a memo that CEO Bob Chapek sent to division leaders outlining a targeted hiring freeze, they're going to start limiting travel, and eventually they're going to be staff cuts. And Chapek said they're going to have to make some tough and uncomfortable decisions. I don't think either you or I are surprised by this, are we? No, no, definitely not. And um, I mean, yeah, congratulations to the to, to Black Panther showing. I mean, that not surprising at all. There, it um, helps. You know, I, it, it goes it, in the plus column. It, it, no question there. And, and I think you know, going forward, I think we're going to see. I think more and more when it comes to cinema, when it comes to seeing movies in the theaters, I think we're going to see this flight to quality. Right. I mean, I think there's going to be just this widening gap as time goes on between the big time players. You know your your Top Gun Mavericks, your Black Panthers, you know, and and then sort of the also rands. And so, I mean, I think that that honestly that plays into Disney's favor. I think given given its vast IP, um, but it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out in regard to movie theaters. Um, in regard to Disney, the business, I mean, definitely not surprised. Uh, it feels like something that was just a matter of time. It, it, I mean, obviously not the only company that's worried about costs and uh, in, in starting to look at cutting positions and and um, freeze hiring. But you know, when you when you look at biz, uh, when you look at Disney from 2017, you compare that to Disney of today. I mean, this is a vastly different company, right? I mean, it is a vastly different. Situation. I mean, we knew that they were going to be making these investments into Disney Plus and into streaming, but I mean, this this was a company that in 2017 chalked up net margin of 16.3 percent, right? Now you fast forward to today. I mean, trailing 12 months, it's 3.8 percent. Now, I mean, we've gone through a lot, and there's a lot that can go into into that accounting. But but there's no question that that a big part of that story is just all of these investments in Disney Plus and in the over the top offering. And I think that's the right thing to do. But for Chapek, and you know, we we talked about this last week a little bit. That he he might not be on the hot seat, but I think his seat's getting a little warm. And and I think primarily, you know, we we said so. If if Chapek were out and you you came in to fill in that role, like what would you do different right now at this point? And I don't think anyone would go in there and say, well, I'm just gonna. Pull back on the investments in streaming and over the top. That's not really the direction we need to be headed. I think you got to you got to kind of see that through. I think it's the right call. But what he really needs to focus on, I mean, he's made this commitment to be to head to have Disney Plus as profitable by 2024. By the end of 2024, this thing needs to be actually making money. And I think they're off on the right foot in regard to the subscriber base, right? They they really, I think, have, have done very well when it comes to getting the subscribers. They have a lot of different levers they can pull in regard to the offerings. Um, 
but but this this cost cutting is going to be a key way for him to get to that profitability goal in 2024 because if he doesn't get to that profitability goal then i think he becomes very much a ceo on the hot seat and will have a lot of questions to answer yeah i think it's uh, completely fair to judge him on that um and and maybe it helps in some small way that he's doing he's talking about this this memo comes out in an environment where we're seeing more companies moving in this direction. We talked uh, on the radio show last week about Redfin and Meta Platforms. Um, right before you and I started recording today, we got these reports that Amazon is going to be laying off more than 10,000 employees in corporate and tech roles. We'll, we'll see what form those eventually take. Um, but it, it really is just one more brick in the you know belt tightening wall if i can just complete that very tortured <laughs> metaphor <laughs> yeah. well yeah i mean i think we all like to see our companies our investments practicing sound fiscal behavior right i mean we want them to be thinking about this kind of of thing always and in it, it when when times are better money is is free you don't have to think about it as much because again i mean the access to capital is just so easy and you've got all of these different pokers in the fire and, and you're thinking about the future but when things start to get a little bit difficult when the purse strings start to tighten um you know i mean i think it's an advantage for for disney in this case that clearly they're not the only company that's going to be doing this i mean this is a, this is something that's just becoming um widespread you know, most most companies out there are now trying to figure out how to uh manage their cost structure a little bit better whittle down the workforce um i think they can they can do more with less and and i think we're going to see that across the board here and I think what that's going to result in probably a year from now, I think we're going to see a little bit of a different um, employment picture. I mean, clearly there are a lot of jobs that are being eliminated um, right now. That doesn't seem to be an issue, but we're starting to see signs that you know that unemployment rate is ticking up. We're seeing signs that folks who uh, participated in the Great Resignation, right, that, that, that they just said, "Hey, I'm going to go ahead and take off because I don't need this job and I can find something better and more convenient." At the time, I think maybe that made a little bit more sense. We're seeing some signs that that that's a little bit of a difficult, uh, a little bit of a more difficult path to slog, so to speak. I mean, it's, it's a little bit, a little bit tricky finding jobs that pay the same or offer the same convenience or are really ultimately jobs as as, as they've been advertised. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's we're going to see a lot of companies, I think, whittling down their cost structures here in the coming in the coming quarters, and um, it's just going to be very interesting to see how that plays out in this employment picture over the course of the next year. Let's move on to social media. Last Thursday, an official-looking Twitter account for the pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly tweeted out the following message: "We are excited to announce insulin is free now." Yay! This, this was <laughs> not the official Eli Lilly account. It was fake. Oh. And reportedly, uh, it led to some amount of insider selling, just reacting to the possibility that it was the official account. Friday morning, executives at Eli Lilly ordered an immediate stop to advertising on Twitter. And this is not a company we talk about very often. So, um, just for those unfamiliar, this is a $330 billion global company with a massive advertising budget. And Elon Musk would probably prefer that they 
stay advertising on Twitter. They have paused not just their ad spend, they have paused their publishing plan for all of their corporate accounts around the world. And now that Twitter is no longer a public company, Jason, my mind goes to the companies that are public in this space. Is this not an opportunity for people selling advertising on Snap and Instagram and Facebook? If these and, and Eli Lilly is one of just dozens of companies that have come out over the last couple of weeks who have said some version of we're pausing our ad spend. We're not necessarily eliminating eliminating it altogether, but we're taking a break. Companies with huge ad budgets, if they want to keep going on social media, it seems like a great opportunity for Snap and Meta platforms to steal some business from Twitter. I think it absolutely is. I think I think in regard to Twitter, I think things are going to get worse before they get better. If they get better, um, that is just a that's a big problem to fix. I mean, there are a lot of moving parts there that that are going to require a lot of uh, a lot of understanding and in strategy going forward. So I, I think for Twitter, I mean, this is going to be a really difficult time, at least as a business. Now, thankfully, they have the luxury that they are not a publicly traded company anymore. Um, you know, the flip side to that is, I mean, Elon Musk is one of the most publicly out there CEOs, entrepreneurs, leaders that, that we have, right? I mean, he he is he's on Twitter, it seems far more now than he ever was before. Maybe he's just, you know, he likes that new shiny toy. Look, mom, what I just got for Christmas. Um, I don't know. But it does feel to me like, you know, those advertising dollars are not going to just sit there idly. I mean, those companies are going to reallocate those advertising dollars to other platforms to realize return on them. Um, I think it's been argued pretty effectively over time that Twitter probably was a lower form of advertising return than most of the other social platforms. And so I don't think it's going to be a difficult decision for companies to say, hey, listen, we're just going to allocate these dollars to other places where we know that there will be some return, whether that's Instagram, Snap, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever. But there's just no question about it. And, and it really does put Twitter, I think, on the clock. Right, because this really all boils down to companies feeling secure, understanding what the strategy of the platform is, and ultimately what it's going to stand for. And until you have that, and you feel good about that, you're not necessarily going to want to allocate a lot of advertising dollars. Um, and if you do, whenever you decide to to start that that flow back, it probably is going to start in the form of a trickle to test the waters. And so I think it really it really does bode poorly for Twitter's near term future in regard to its advertising budget. I, I just don't think people are going to pay for Twitter Blue like maybe he thinks people are. Um, plenty of planning anecdotal information out there to suggest that that, that people won't. Um, and so it seems like it is going to be a business that's going to be very much dependent on advertising, at least for the near future, which means he is going to have a lot on his plate. Jason Moser, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Even though interest rates are rising, it's not like banks are rushing to give you a great return on your deposit. Jason Moser and Matt Franco look into what safe investments are offering and how those returns could change. Hey, Matt, great to catch up with you again. You know, if you haven't noticed, Matt, interest rates are kind of a big deal right now. Uh, the Fed is pushing them up in an all out war on inflation. That's having a lot of ripple effects. 
many of those ripple effects that we read about today are making consumers' lives more difficult, right? I mean, we got higher mortgage rates, higher credit card rates, cost of borrowing just going up across the board. But there are some positives that can come from this too, as interest rates are also going up on things like savings accounts, CDs, and other instruments that we want to dig into today. So, we're going to take a quick look today at three different areas where investors looking for safer places for their money may want to dig in a bit more. And let's go ahead and kick it off and talk a little bit about high yield savings, because this is something that, you know, I think you, I think many of us grew up, uh, you know, being taught the virtues of a savings account and, and uh, putting away some money for a rainy day. And it, it was, it was, I think, a significantly different interest rate profile back in, back in those days uh, than what we've seen over the last uh, really decade plus. Um, but maybe high yield savings accounts are making a little bit of a comeback. What do you think? Yeah, I'll, I'll age myself for a minute here. I opened my first savings account in 1996 and it was paying roughly 4% interest at the time. <laughs> wow. Um, so people in my generation and your gen- and you know our generation, we were kind of trained that that was a risk-free way to make a, a little bit of money and put your account in a safe place. But when you think about what's been going on in the stock market, say the last two years, not only was the market on fire, but my savings account, pay, even even the high yield accounts online, paid something like 03 percent. Yeah. And putting money there felt like you were giving up. That's really <laughs> that's really not the case now. In this market, a guaranteed return of two or three percent doesn't sound that awful, especially yeah. given what the stock market's been doing. So I, I took a quick look at some of our favorite high yield savings accounts over at the Ascent, the Motley Fool's uh, partner company, and the average the rates range right now from two and three quarters to three and a quarter percent on savings accounts. And these aren't from no-name institutions, just um, Marcus by Goldman Sachs, Barclays, they both pay 3% right now. Uh, American Express pays 2.75% on its savings accounts. Um, So, it's a much better option than it was a few years ago. Yeah, and you know, one thing I I think about too is over the last, uh, you know, 10, 10 plus years, I mean, anytime you submit your, you know, anytime you file your taxes, right, you get your you get your forms back from your your institution saying you made this much in your investments, you made this much with your interest, and it, it literally was just like never even possible, I think, to make enough interest on savings account for it to even be reported, right? You just you just kind of knew at the end of the year that whatever you had in savings, you didn't have to worry about that, right? Um, being reported because you just didn't make enough. Interest rates weren't weren't high enough. I mean, I would I would guess now at least that is something that could change a little bit if if folks are looking at these savings accounts and thinking, hey, you know what? Um, I'm going to put I'm going to put a, a more significant amount in there, particularly if folks are in that protect your wealth uh, stage of life, right? Yeah, and I mean, if I get a tax form because I got enough interest on my savings account, that's a good problem to have. That's a nice problem to have, especially how you've been conditioned over the past few years that savings accounts pay nothing. So it kind of feels like free money these days. But it's it's worth pointing out that a lot of their savings accounts aren't perfect. They are generally they have a lot of them have different requirements you have to meet to get these APRs that I mentioned. Yeah, some require you to have set up direct deposit, for example. Some require you to maintain a certain minimum balance. So when you're comparing these, it's not just, oh, this one pays three percent, this one pays two and three quarters. I'm going to go with the three percent. You have to really kind of dig a little bit deeper and see what the requirements are, see how flexible they are, see what kind of withdrawal and deposit options you are. Because a lot of online savings accounts, if you wanted to say deposit cash, 
what do you do? <laughs> so some make it easier than others. So there's a lot more to think about than just the rates. But all in all, it's it's really not a bad option if you have like you know your emergency fund and want to kind of put it to work a little bit. Yeah, not a bad option. I think it's a great point you make there. Read the fine print because. There always is some, and, and I think that you know, with our next instrument here, is CDs, you know, certificates of deposit, very similar to savings accounts. But the one, the one thing that a savings account has that a CD doesn't, savings accounts are typically more flexible, right? But I think you're going to get a little bit of the benefit from a CD because you're making a little bit more of a time commitment there. Yeah, so CDs are slightly less less flexible. You're committing to tying up your money for a certain amount of time. Now it's not totally tied up. Yeah. It's not like let's say you get a one-year CD and then three months later you need the money to pay for something. They're not just going to tell you to get lost. You might get hit with a penalty, yeah. but it, they're they're less flexible than a savings account. But in exchange for giving up some of your flexibility, like you said, you get a slightly higher rate. I just did a quick comparison of some of our favorite um, online banks, some of these same ones that I mentioned with the savings accounts, and the average rates on a one-year saving or a one-year CD range from 3.25 to 4% right now. Barclays, for example, is paying 4% right now on, on one-year CDs. So if you're willing to tie that money up for a year, you can get an extra you know, percent, full percentage point of return out of it. Sure. Um, and it's like I said, it's not totally inflexible. You can usually get your money back if you're willing to eat a little penalty, but it's definitely less flexible than a savings account. So it's not necessarily a great place for your emergency savings, You know, money you might need at any given time. But if you have just some cash and you I, buying bonds can be a hassle, things like that. If you have, want some kind of fixed income portion of your portfolio, a yeah. CD can be a good way to do it. Yeah. And, you know, another strategy that, that folks can consider with CDs um, is, is laddering them, right? I mean, you, you don't have to just put all of your money in one one year CD. I mean, you could look at breaking it out into three months, six month, one year, two year, you put a little bit in each one so that you're not tying all of your money up at once. You'll kind of run into into sort of expiration dates periodically along the way where you know you'll have some money freeing up if you need it. Um, and, and it still gives you the opportunity to try to take advantage of, 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 those, of those higher rates. And, and obviously, the longer that you can commit that money, the tendency is you know, the better the rates you're going to get. Yeah, generally speaking, a five-year CD would pay a lot more than a one-year CD. Well, no, I mean, like a percentage point or so. But so the idea with the latter is, let's say you break your, you have ten thousand dollars, you put it in five baskets of two thousand by one year, two year, three year, four year, and five-year CDs. Yeah. The idea is that every year some of your money will become available, and if you don't need it, you can then roll it into the current five-year CD rate. So you're always taking advantage of that long-term interest rate. Um, it, it, a CD ladder is a great strategy if you, for, I mean, keep some emergency cash in a readily available place, but if you want, you know, a combination of access to your money and high yield, that a CD ladder is a good strategy to look into. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, well, let's wrap up today with I-bonds and it seems I-bonds are taking front and center for, um, a, a lot of reasons, but really the primary reason of course is inflation. I mean, inflation has just been, uh, one of, one of the biggest headlines of the year. And it, it's been kind of dry. It's been driving the bus more or less as far as, you know, what the fed is deciding to do, which has ultimately been, you know, having its impacts on the market, but I bonds, you know, and you, you can't just invest a limitless amount of money into I bonds, but they do serve, I think a, a really, 
uh, a good purpose for folks looking uh, for a place to park their money for for yeah I guess I guess it would qualify for a shorter timeline because I think I bonds are typically a year if if not less but ultimately helping you kind of keep from you know keep keep that inflation from really uh, gnawing away at your uh, at the income that you're generating yeah so a lot to unpack there so first well. The rate is very short term. The, the rate you get on an I-bond is guaranteed for the first six months, and then it resets every six months thereafter based on inflation. The bond itself is a 30-year bond, but there's a possibility that down the road, it's going to be paying nothing if there's no inflation. Right. Um, a couple of, I think I-bonds were literally paying nothing not that long ago. Um, so right now, the, the rate just dropped because of in, had the way they measure inflation. Starting on November 1st, the I-bond rate went from 9.62% which is a pretty high guaranteed yield to 6.89%. Um, but it's kind of a little a tricky interest rate there. There's two components to it. There's a fixed rate that stays with the bond for its entire 30-year life. And then there's an inflation adjustment. The fixed rate right now is 0.4%. So even if there's no inflation going forward, that's kind of the, the floor. Yeah. Uh, six point, and then there's the 6.49% inflation adjustment. Um, so... It's much higher than either a savings account or a CD, but like you said, there are drawbacks. You can buy $10,000 a year per person is the cap. You can get another $5,000 if you want to use your tax refund to buy them. But even with that, with a large portfolio, it's not likely to become a big portion of your portfolio. Having said that, you can't sell an I-bond for a year. You can't, unlike a CD where you can just sell it and eat a penalty whenever you want, I-bonds you literally cannot sell for a year. So your money will be tied up. And if you sell within the first five years, you get hit with a penalty equal to the last three months of your interest. Right now, three months of interest is a lot on an I-bond. So it's pluses and minuses. And plus the interest is uh, exempt from state and local taxes um, and federal taxes if you use the money for education. So it's a way to get out of taxes. Like you mentioned, there are tax implications to, to savings interest. So pluses and minuses to all of these. And um, yeah, it, it's three great options depending on what your preferences are. Well, Matt, you've given us a lot to chew on and I'm sure our listeners will benefit from your wisdom as well. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Of course, always good to be back here with you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.